0: Good morning. Good morning. First, I want to say thank you to the session here at Lehigh Valley, and thank you to you for sharing your pulpit with me this morning. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 120, we will pray and read God's word together. Let us begin our time in prayer this morning. Lord God in heaven, we give to you thanks for gathering us together tonight for the worship of your name and for the illumination of your word to our hearts and minds. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would make use of your word preached, that your people would benefit from it, that your spirit would make use of this meager work to give us as your people the spiritual food which we so desperately need. You tell us in your word that man cannot live by bread alone, but that we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your breathed out scriptures to live by. I ask, Lord, this morning that the preached word would be a nourishment to our souls and instruction to our lives. These things we ask in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Our sermon text this morning is from Psalm 120. We'll read it and then we will begin our time. Psalm 120, a song of a sense. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those people who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, in the long and noble history of the human race, Uh, We have traveled as people from one place to another for very many different reasons. In the modern age, we travel for medical treatment, for duties related to employment, to see extended family for reunions and holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas and Memorial Day. And a new phenomenon in this past couple of centuries, a new reason to travel, is for vacation. But of all the reasons one might travel, our text today, found in Psalm 120, speaks to an additional reason. It speaks of the reason of traveling for pilgrimage. In fact, in the Old Testament period, God required his people to appear before him three times a year to pilgrimage to the tabernacle of the Lord in Jerusalem um, and to present themselves before him with a sacrifice. We find in Exodus 23 verses 14 to 17 that this is the requirement. There, God's word says, "'Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. "'You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread "'as I commanded you. "'You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days "'at the appointed time in the month of Abib. "'For in it you came out of Egypt. "'None shall appear before me empty-handed. "'You shall keep the feast of the harvest "'of the first fruits of your labor.' Of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field and the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, you shall all, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. In principle, all males were required, if able, to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to the house of God and present themselves with a sacrifice." We see pilgrimages in the New Testament as well. Jesus is asking John 7 whether he intends to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or what we just read in Exodus 23, the Feast of the Ingathering. Jesus initially does not, but privately then he does go up, and so as to avoid a spectacle, he ascends to Jerusalem quietly and in private. It is in regards to these feasts, these pilgrimages, that give us the overall context this morning for Psalm 120 and the 14 Psalms that follow it. I promise I'm not preaching on the other 14 this morning. <laughs> there, They are what are called the Psalms of Ascent. They are a specific category of 15 psalms in the Psalter and have been historically understood to be songs related to these pilgrimages that the pilgrims of, of Israel had to do as they journeyed up to the house of God to worship and to celebrate the feasts of God. In our text this morning, the psalmist, our pilgrim, begins his journey in a lamentable state. He finds himself the victim of lies and deception, the victim of a warlike, violent people with whom, for one reason or another, he has been obligated to live near. And it is amidst these troubles at the start of his journey that he calls out to his God for deliverance. As he journeys to join together with the people of God for worship, that he details to God his complaints and assures us of the fact that God hears him. It is a message that is most applicable to the church today, as she finds herself living in a fallen world amidst a foreign people, and yet she is sojourning, we are sojourning as God's people toward that heavenly Zion. In our time of distress as the New Testament people of God, corporately or individually, though we might imagine ourselves far off, in a far country, we always can cry out to our God like the pilgrim does here in our text. And God has promised that he both hears us and that he will deliver us. And our, and our God, he does so. He indeed delivers us both in the here and now and ultimately in a context of eternity. So beginning with verse 1, the psalmist tells us a song of ascents. In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. Again, this is the first of the 15 Psalms of Ascent, similar to how we who are from Philadelphia would say that if you're going down to the beach, you are going down the shore. In the ancient world, everyone colloquially understood that when one went to Jerusalem, they went up to Jerusalem, they went up to the city of God. Hence why it's been translated this way as the Psalms of Ascent's that as one is ascending up to the Mount of Jerusalem, up to the house of God, one sings these Psalms of Ascent. And for this first song of ascent, our pilgrim declares to us, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Our pilgrim will tell us soon the nature of his distress in a moment, but in the meantime, we ought to reflect on something first, specifically the behavior of the pilgrim in his distress. What does he do as he is distressed and overcome? What is his response? He cried unto the Lord, to God, to the God of Israel, who in Psalm 121 tells us neither slumbers nor sleeps. Scripture generally instructs us in our behavior in one of two ways. The first way Scripture instructs us to behave is uh, is to respond to Uh, imperative commands, imperative statements that scripture gives us, what we ought to do, what God commands us to do. Thus says the Lord, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie. These are explicit imperative commands that we must obey. Or we see another example in the positive in Micah 6, 8. The Lord has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. These are imperative commands that God expects from us. The second way Scripture generally instructs us on how to please God with our actions and how to love our neighbor properly is in the indicative. Simply put, Scripture gives us examples of what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. And again, not every case in the indicative, in the narrative or of the text that tells a story is meant or implied to be examples we ought to follow. In fact, often the opposite is the case where Scripture shows us the actions of others with the implications that these are things we ought not to to do. The incident with David and Bathsheba and Uriah is a clear case in point to this. However, it is the case here in our text this morning that our pilgrim is demonstrating to us what we ought to do when we likewise are in distress. We are to cry out to our God. Like our pilgrim when faced with the all too common distresses of this life, we are to cry out to our Lord, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here is the part that I find really amazing. Not only does our pilgrim cry out to God, to the God of the universe in his distress, he tells us that after he has cried out, God heard me. My God delivered me. Brothers and sisters, let us not think that our prayers, that our calls, that our cries, that our weeping, our desperate pleas fall on deaf ears. They do not. God... The God who created all things, the Lord who rules high above in the heavens, hears you when you, his people, call out to him. Your prayers travel that far. The Apostle John seeks to encourage us in this in his first epistle when he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It is certainly God's will for us, as his flock, as his sheep, the sheep of his pasture, to come to him. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus himself exhorted us to do so. He said, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you laboring and weighed down by the troubles and trials and upsets of this life, even to the point where it causes you distress, distress? cry out to God, the God who did not withhold his only son from death for your own sake, he hears you. Know that he who died for your sins and rose again from the dead and who is now ruling and reigning in power on high, know that he hears you. Whatever else we are to learn of our pilgrim's distress in the verses that follow, know that your God hears you and that he has promised to do so. He is also promised in the prophet Isaiah, for example, It shall come to pass that before they call, I, that is the Lord, will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear them. This is the ultimate promise of God to you forevermore into eternity, that he hears you. But on to verse 2. What is the nature of our pilgrim's distress? He tells us here in verse 2, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. We are cued in here in verse two of the nature of our pilgrim's cry and the nature of what is distressing him. First, the nature of our pilgrim's cry is he is crying out for deliverance. He wants to be delivered from his distress, so he cries out, deliver my soul, O Lord. And in this case, specifically, from those who are perpetrating false witness against him, those who he is associated with in some way are lying and deceiving their way around and about him, and it is causing him incredible distress, hence his cry. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I'm a huge Charles Spurgeon fan. Uh, If you meet me for any length of time, I'll probably chime in something about what Charles Spurgeon said. Um, I love what he says here. The author has been grievously calumniated against and had been tortured into bitterness by false charges of his persecutors. And here is his appeal to the great arbiter of right and wrong, before whose judgment seat no man shall suffer from slanderous tongues. The horrible reality is that when human beings turn their words into weapons of deceit is that it can be difficult to disprove lies, the lies of our persecutors. And this is precisely what Spurgeon's and the Pilgrim's point are here. If you have been slandered, the whole world may believe it and our reputation may suffer horrendously for it Uh, one show I remember seeing as a child was a man took a pillow uh, and the young boy who had lied against him to a field and the boy said what can I do to repair the damage and the man cut the pillow open and spread the feathers all over town and he said find every feather and return it to the pillow This is how it can feel when we are lied against and calumniated against and someone distresses us in this way. But I promise you that the God who is over all things, who sees all things, who knows all things, who hears all things, is not himself deceived. Knowing that this pilgrim's cry out for vindication, for deliverance, and it is right that we cry out to God for such deliverance, God hears us. God hears us. And the psalmist in Psalm 68 reminds us of this. Our God is a God of salvation. And to Jehovah the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. And again in Psalm 74, yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. God delivers his people. That is why Jesus came to cleanse us from sin, to set at liberty the captives, to deliver us unto himself as his particular people to whom he has given the right and the title to be called children of God. God delivers his people. But this begs a little bit of a question. Who's, who, what does deliverance look like? What should we expect to see when we say God delivers his people? Well, the answer to that we find in verses three and four. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? The pilgrim here is praying against, praying for judgment against the lying deceitful tongues, which are representative of those who use lying and deceit as weapons to otherwise slander and defraud others. In short, to bring harm to their neighbor. The pilgrim starts with a rhetorical question in verse 3. You've caused me immense distress with your lying. What ought to happen to you? One commentator notes that the pilgrim seems almost at a loss in this verse to devise an appropriate punishment for the incredible damage that breaking the ninth commandment that lying can wreak or has wreaked on people's lives. Well, in verse 4, he tells us what he imagines might be a fitting punishment for such. Sharp arrows of the mighty, he cries out. In short, I hope you get shot in the tongue with piercing arrows. Just as the words you sent forth from your tongue pierced others with your deceit, I hope they return to your own tongue and pierce it. And next, with coals of the juniper or coals of the broom tree, I hope your tongue burns in the hottest fires. Just as your tongue lit fires with its lies, I hope your tongue burns long and deeply without relief. This one is particularly ingenious because what many translates translate as juniper, what we see here in the ESV is the broom tree, is probably, again, closer to what archeo- ar- the archaeological record uh, has recorded as the Palestinian white broom tree. In the ancient world, the, the wood and the roots of this tree were highly desired to make charcoal because they had this particular property that when lit, when put to the fire, it would burn hotter and longer than any other wood or charcoal in the surrounding region. It was widely sought after, and the pilgrim thought of the hottest thing, the most enduring, fiery object that he could bring to mind, and said, I hope this is what God does to punish you for your lives. And this judgment comes in two forms, immediate and lasting. The judgment in this life and the eternal judgment meted out over the course of eternity that is to come. The brother of our Lord, James, seems to agree with this in his letter. In James 3, he says, Even so, the tongue is a little member, and yet it boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and yet on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Righteous judgment against their lying and deceitful tongue is what James is promising and what our pilgrim here in our text is hoping for. That is why we must take care with how we talk, with what we say. We as Christians ought to speak purposefully, deliberately, with forethought to what comes out of our mouths. Because even though Jesus has washed us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness, we must not allow our tongue to drag us into sinning against and grieving our Father in heaven and our brothers and sisters here on earth. But Dominic, you might say, this verse is talking about judgment. Where is this discussion on deliverance that you promised us? How about this verse? How does this verse speak of God delivering his people who he hears? We see it here in two ways. First, we perhaps see God's deliverance in such circumstances immediately, temporally in this life and here and now. The second way we see it is in the eternity that is to come. And this distinction is important because ultimately God delivers his people in a context of eternity. God can and does deliver his people in the here and now, from their troubles here and now, as well as ultimately in eternity by giving them his son and through his son eternal life. In the here and now, sometimes God delivers us from our distress, from liars and deceivers. This is certainly part of the Apostle Paul's testimony. In fact, he boasts about this in his second letter to Timothy. There he says, To Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my life, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul's testimony is that God delivered him, often miraculously, from trials and distresses in this life. And Paul never had any trouble again. No, unfortunately, that is not the case. If you know the history of the Apostle Paul, you know that God has kept him all of these ways, and God kept him until the time when he faced a Roman executioner's sword. Paul found himself delivered until Paul found himself in Rome, at the executioner's block where the executioner separated his head from his body. And we must ask the question, did God fail to deliver Paul? Does God fail to deliver his people, even when bad things happen to us? Of course not. God does not fail to deliver his people. God may have not kept Paul's head from the Roman executioner's sword, but the moment Paul closed his eyes on this earth, the moment he shut his eyes... They were opened by his Savior in eternity in the presence of our Savior saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And Paul's deliverance to eternity and to heaven with his Savior was met with the shouts of joy and and wonder and love from those Paul himself had persecuted in a previous life. Paul, you see, was delivered from the Roman executioner's sword years, perhaps decades before, even on the road to Damascus when the Lord struck him and struck him blind and guided him to salvation by grace through faith at the hands of one Ananias of Antioch. The moment Paul entered into salvation bought for him by Christ, he entered into the eternal life that is promised him and the Lord delivered Paul forevermore from persecutions and trials and even death. It was only a conveyance that God used to bring Paul from this life into the bosom of his Savior. The same conveyance the Lord will use to ferry us to himself, should he tarry in his coming. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you cry out to the Lord, know that he hears you. Know that he has already committed to you the hoped for deliverance of eternal life. For God delivers his people ultimately in a context of eternity. And whether things go according to our plans in the here and now, whether God delivers us immediately or eternally from our trials here on earth, allows us to experience hardship of them, to feel the sting and the lack of frustration, of loss, and of withholding. If you know Jesus, you've already been delivered. Winston Churchill, another, I'm another fan of Winston Churchill, uh, at the front end of the Second World War gave a speech to Parliament where he attempted to bolster the fighting spirit of the British people. And in the face of overwhelming circumstances presented by the Nazis across the English Channel, he told the British people that they would have to prove themselves once more suitable to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary, alone. We who live in a state of spiritual war on this earth, confronted by the enemy's attacks on our health and our prosperity, On our mental and emotional well being, we can often feel as if we are alone, dragging on and on and on. My brothers and sisters, you are not alone. Your God hears you. Your Jesus has already delivered you and given you eternal life. His Holy Spirit dwells with you and in you. He who loved you from the first and from eternity past will bring you through these earthly trials. Though they last for weeks, months, years, or decades, his love for you and for your joyous eternity spent with him will last all the longer still. Take comfort in him, my dear friends. So where does this leave us? In the last several verses in which we see the mirror experience of the Christian church in this life, we read through verses five and seven here. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Remember that this is a psalm of ascent. The pilgrim shows us where his journey is beginning here, from where he has cried out for deliverance and how far off God has heard him. He says in verse five, woe to me, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. The people of Meshech were peoples of modern-day Syria and Turkey. And in ancient times, this region was ruled first by the Hittites and then later by the Assyrians, and they were a people who were constantly harassing and oppressing the Israelites, constantly harassing and oppressing the people of God. And the people of Kedar, the Kedarites, are what we would call them uh, modern-day Bedouin tribesmen living near Jordan and in Arabia. These were a warlike people constantly on the move, constantly fighting over the precious little water and grazing area available. And in fact, uh, this was the case even into the 20th century. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia writes about them and their tribalistic style of warfare that he makes use of to fight the Axis in World War I. This is the context our pilgrim finds himself in as he begins this journey toward Israel toward Jerusalem, toward the holy temple of God, until the celebration with God's people. He finds himself in the midst of a polytheistic, belligerent, oppressive, pagan people. Incidentally, this is where the church finds herself today. We, as the people of God, are inhabiting a fallen world, inhabited by those who, in active rebellion against our creator, as such were some of us, but God washed us and cleansed us and saved us by the blood of the Lamb. And now, like our pilgrim who travels for the feasts of God, we as the church are sojourning. We are pilgrimaging together to the eternal heavenly Zion. We are, as we begin our pilgrimage as the church in this life, in this far country, journeying toward our heavenly home. We can relate to our pilgrim in this way in verse six, too long have I have I had my dwelling among those people who hate peace? Our pilgrim is tired, exhausted from having to dwell in the far country among a foreign violent people amid human sinfulness and depravity. There's a quote from John MacArthur that sums it up here and I much appreciate it. When people ask me what appeals to me about heaven, it is not the streets of transparent glass or gates made of pearls. It is the absence of sin. I am tired of sin likewise to our pilgrim we as the church are tired of sin we are longing to be brought over the jordan to the habitation of the people of god away from those who hate peace to the eternal dwelling of god where he dwells with his people we long for the eternal pax dei the eternal peace of god we long to hear declared from god's throne that we as the church would long for this ultimate deliverance in the midst of suffering from war weariness in this fallen world. This fallen world where we suffer from the attacks of our satanic enemy and in his demonic hosts who lay siege to and assault the church of God day in and day out. Where we are assailed by our own fallen sinful nature and that of our fellow human beings made in the creator's image but whose nature is yet depraved and warped by sin. But Paul encourages us to not let us grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When we grow tired and weary of the distresses of this world, we ought to do as our pilgrim does here. We ought to call out to God in Christ Jesus our Savior and trust in him that what he is doing on our behalf and what he has done on our behalf is for our good. Believe and hope on what he has said in his word And know that what he has given us is his Holy Spirit to dwell richly in us. And this is important for the mission we encounter in verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The pilgrim finds himself unable to speak with his bellicose neighbors, threatening violence at the mere presence of his words. And again, this is something that we as the church can relate to because we have a mission. We have a mission to speak peace the peace of Christ, the salvation of the gospel in this world. Where Christendom can no longer be assumed to be the dominant way of thinking, we still have this mission of speaking peace and speaking the gospel to our neighbors. We are called to speak, we are called to preach the hoped-for deliverance of the gospel of salvation. We are called to tell our pagan, ungodly, rebellious neighbor to repent of their sins and to be baptized into a saving faith. Because as they are, we were, and our Savior has called upon us to be faithful in the proclamation of his salvation. As the church in this fallen world, we are in a far country, dwelling amidst the peoples of Meshech, near the tents of Kedar. And it has so often been, and even now is the case, that when we speak, when we present the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in the completed work of Christ alone, that we are met with violent retort. That when we speak of the peace God offers, the fallen world speaks of war, of rebellion against their creator. Jesus said that we should expect as much. He said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. But that was not the final word. Jesus goes on to say, I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the warlike nations of Meshech. He has overcome and crushed the belligerent tribes of the Keterites. He will deliver you, on your pilgrimage, safely over the river Jordan to the heavenly Zion. So this week, as you sojourn through foreign lands, amidst deceits, amidst the falsehoods, the conflicts, the oppressions of this life on our long pilgrimage toward our heavenly home in Zion, cry out to your Lord Jesus. Know that our God delivers and has delivered his people in a context of eternity. And the distress you are encountering now is not the final word. Know that He, your God, has heard you and hears you even now in the deepest distresses of your soul. Know that He has delivered you by His cross and by His Spirit. He has rendered unto you the hoped-for deliverance, that hoped-for deliverance of eternal life bought by the blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ, applied to you as the declared sons and daughters of God, which can never be snatched away from you. You can never be snatched away from him. He will deliver you from all your troubles into his own loving arms where we as God's people will dwell and rest for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you again for this morning. I pray that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and go out into the rest of the week, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would comfort us, that we would trust in you, and that we would cry out for you knowing that you have delivered us as your people. We ask these things in the name of your son Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings